Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations on Predators in Business, Community, and Culture, a podcast exploring the real-life stories of predatory patterns in our everyday lives, with episodes ranging from well-meaning white people to CPTSD and high achievers' anxiety in a world that has a fetish for peak performance. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to breaking codes of silence, shame, and secrecy in our own families, communities, companies, and cultures, but mostly within our own bodies. I want to welcome today's guest to the podcast. His name is Rafer Weigel. He's the founder of WMG Communications, a content marketing firm. Weigel is a three-time Emmy award-winning journalist whose career began in print journalism at at the Chicago Sun-Times and the Los Angeles Times. He then became a sports anchor at CNN Headline News and later ABC7 Chicago before transitioning to news. Weigel has was a news anchor at Fox 32 and was the reporter credited with breaking the story that Chicago police were going to charge uh, Jesse Smollett with staging a fake hate crime. He's covered presidential elections, a major sport, major sporting events like the Olympics and Super Bowls and everything in between. He's with us today to share about the confusion of unacknowledged sexual abuse as a teenager and the impact that it's had on his adult life in both intimate relationships and in his professional career. I want to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, uh, Guru Nishan. I am. Uh, I, I admire what you stand for. I admire what you do. And uh, I'm grateful to be here. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Um, you know, we met each other a few weeks ago at, at a professional networking event. And, and then in our own personal side conversation, when I started sharing with you my podcast and the work I'm doing, you became very open about an experience you had in this exact arena um, as as having had early abuse, but that kind of got covered up by social norms and kind of gender society expectations. And, you know, it, it really hit my heart in a way that was like an, an area of men's sexual abuse, a sexual abuse that men experience young. And because we have so much kind of machoism and gender normality around the way men are supposed to receive sex versus the way women are supposed to receive sex, it just hit me. And it, was a, it, it wasn't a new conversation for me. I'd been talking about the unacknowledged sexual abuse of young men and young boys for the last year or so. But your willingness to get honest with me in this short conversation just really led me to be like, will you come to the podcast? Because it, it, it's such an important <laughs> point. And I thank you for your vulnerability. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, my story is a cautionary tale. And, uh, you know, you touched on a good point. I did not consider myself a victim of sexual abuse because my sexual experiences involved women. And uh, it was not until, and, and you know, and, and I, the reason I wanted to share it is because you know, it shaped a lot of a pattern of unhealthy decisions with regards to because it completely warped my my view of what a healthy relationship was. And those series of destructive self-destructive decisions ultimately led to my professional demise. Um, and so we'll get into that in a minute. But when I went to after it happened, I at least, you know, had been, done enough work to, to acknowledge my role. Why did I get involved in this situation? And as I and I went to therapy for the first time. 
Uh, I had never gone to therapy. I come from a macho background that's asked for help as a sign of weakness. And it was all about, you know what, your career is fine. Well, if that's fine, every, nothing else matters. And I'd gone through a series of, you know, di a divorce and, and a bunch of other stuff. And I went to a therapist and I told her, she said, first question was, tell me about your, your first sexual experiences. And I told her, she went, oh, you were a victim of sexual abuse. And I was like, I, I was? I, I didn't think of it that way. I was 15 years old. The woman was married woman. She was 23. And I consider that like, you know, like you talked about the cultural norms. Like I thought that was meant I was like the coolest kid at school. Um, that being said, I knew I couldn't tell anybody about it. I felt very bizarre. I didn't know how to emotionally process it. And to this day, I don't remember the actual experience in terms of like specifics. Like I've completely blocked it out uh, other than just knowing that I was confused and, and knowing that it was wrong. Um, you know, this woman had essentially recruited me through it. She was married, her husband's way on, on business a lot, and she wanted companionship. So it was very transactional. It was very, you know, we met at a Motel 6, and that was our meeting point. Um, and, uh, and, and so after that, I completely shut down. And then my next experience after that, I, I knew I wasn't able to have a relationship with, with other girls in my high school after that, because I really didn't know kind of, I, like I said, I had trouble processing it. And my next relationship was a teacher. Uh, also in her 20s. And um, that went on for several months. Um, but that, I mean, you talk about social norms, you know, I was 16 at that time. I, I, and, and she was about 22, 23. I met her family. Uh, her family knew about the relationship. Uh, but I knew it was wrong. And again, I knew I couldn't tell any of my friends. I, you know, I kept it a secret. So fast forward for 30 years of pushing away love and healthy relationships, only seeking emotionally unavailable women, uh, abusive uh, relationships. If I did enter into a healthy relationship, I sabotaged it because I did not, it didn't make sense to me on a visceral and emotional and vibrational level. So I love the work that you're doing because, you know, you, at the end of the day, uh, you know, my therapist said I experienced trauma. Did not think of it that way, but when I look back at my career, you know, the path that I went, I'm like, I guess I did because of the way that I reacted to it. Uh, so since then, you know, my story is a happy ending. I have done tremendous amounts of personal development and work in, uh, in that area and, you know, forgiving myself, forgiving others. I, I don't want to call myself a victim per se, um, but I, you know, what happened after that in, in terms of the decisions that I was made, you know, that's that's chapter two of this is that. You know, I was demonized uh, simply let's because pause. Of let's pause before we get into this next one, because it yeah. gets way more complex as you tell yeah. the story in your adult life. I want to just go back to you're 15 at the first encounter and she's like 23 and it's this kind of fulfilling her needs. She's already married. Right. And then the second one, you're at 16 and this is she's older, she's still 23, but you're saying her family knew, but mm -hmm. your family didn't know you, you no. didn't necessarily tell your friends. So it was kind of okay in her world. Um, and I really want to pause here because the amount of men that I've talked to that had their first sexual experience at 15 or 16 by a woman in her twenties to thirties is far more than the amount of fingers on both of my hands. And I'm saying this because as a culture, something can be traumatic and it gets passed off as culture, right? And we have social norms around, you know, if men do X, that's 
that's macho, you know, that's this, right? If women do that, she's a slut, right? Stuff like this. And we know these kind of double standards when it comes to sex, sexuality, sexual expression. So when we're talking about self-identity as a young man, right? You're 15, 16 years old, you're, you know, all human development, we know, right? That, you know, men mature at certain rates and women mature at certain rates. And there's science about what's happening in our brain. So if culturally it's a status symbol for a man to have sex with an older woman, right? A more mature woman, a pretty, whatever it is. Somehow that's not a category of sexual predatory abuse. Well, and I think it wasn't until recently. I mean, it was like that Van Halen song, Hot for Teacher. I was living it, right? I mean, I thought I was the coolest kid in school, but again, I knew I couldn't tell my classmates about it at the same time. And the first woman who was married, who uh, recruited me, recruited me through another high school friend, another girl I was friends with, who, you know, she said to her friend, hey, I need some companionship. And my friend came to me and was like, hey, I know you, I know you want to lose your virginity. I got somebody for you. And thinking she was doing me a favor by introducing me to this woman. Now, look, I I willingly did go to that Motel 6. I stole my parents' car because I didn't have my driver's license at the time. So I don't want to, you know, cry too much about it. But I do remember going into that experience, not being able to emotionally process it. Um, And to this day, I, again, I I haven't processed it. Maybe I need to do some hypnotherapy or something. Um, But yeah. I think that it's not such a personal uh, fault of yours for not being able to process that as guess is what I'm getting at is that socially and culturally, if men are given the accolades of, right? Like for instance, you just told the story of how another young girl said, Hey, I think you want to use your virginity. And it's all, it's built into social and culture. And yet there's something really potent to be able to hone in on what you're saying around, but I didn't talk about it to anybody. And I really want all of us to hear this. We can be victims of abuse and not know that it was abuse. That's a part of the convolution of waking up to traumatic events that your identity has contexted as normal and not just normal, but okay, or beneficial or um, increasing your manhood. Why would you want to talk bad about something that increased a sense of manhood identity, like in a social construct kind of way and the fact that i'm talking about it really for the first time now at the age of 53 i mean i didn't talk about it when i was a teenager i didn't talk about it with my friends and i and i ended both of those relationships because there was i knew they were i knew it was wrong um and i didn't know other than i knew i couldn't talk about it um even with the the second woman who you know introduced me to her family i remember feeling so weird being around them like if this were a man and I was a 16 year old girl, this man would be going to jail, you know? Um, and I, yeah, and you knew, knew that, that as a teenager, yeah, as a teenager, you had that thought. I okay. did know that as a teenager. And, you know, and the reason I never really cried sexual abuse is because, you know, working in journalism, I've done a lot of stories about young women and young men who have been victims of sexual abuse at the hands of men. And, and obviously, yeah, when you in, infuse the testosterone into that, there is a predatory nature on that. That is very cut and dry. Uh, I did not want to put myself on the same plane as them in any way, shape or form. I thought that's not, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just, I yeah. felt, I felt like that was going to be shameful on, on my part to do it. It wasn't until talking to that therapist in 2020, 2020 rather, and then talking to you where mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I, I, I guess I was. Um, 
but when I look at the patterns of behavior that followed after that and, and how I, I was, um, you know, so dysfunctional in terms of the relationships that I got into, how I processed relationships, how I pushed healthy, unselfish love away from me because I didn't think that was worthy. I don't know, worthy of me. You know, I see other people having it. You know, I would, if I had a healthy relationship, I, I created chaos. I got bored. I didn't know this doesn't feel right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and it took everything collapsing and crashing and burning before I was like, all right, I got to figure out what the hell I'm doing. Cause this is not this, you know, th this is not right. This is not normal. Mm. So well said, so well said to be 53 and to only start acknowledging something for what it was. Um, I very much relate to this, you know, it was only two years ago from now that I realized, holy moly, I have complex PTSD from the culture I grew up in, but I didn't context that as trauma. I contexted it as good. And so my whole identity formed kind of in a mutated way, even though it was a, a wonderful personality, you know, um, and I want to say the same thing for you. It's like when we have early compacted and experiences, we context them however we can. But if we don't have a support to understand healthy attachment, to learn healthy love, right, and not codependent based um, manipulation that is passed off as relationship um, and going back to that we can be abused and not call it abuse because we didn't know that. So that's essentially what grooming is, folks whether it's an older man grooming a young woman, the groomed person is a willing participant, quote, because that's a part of what makes it grooming. It's a willingness to go there. But the power dynamic of somebody older and younger automatically sets up the abuse situation, even if, quote, we had some level of consent because we were too young to really do that. And I've only really learned that the more I learned about coercive control and understanding um, what does it mean to be somebody um, in an environment where like an authority, like a teacher becomes a, 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 an abuse abuser, right? You don't know because you've given authority to that person. Um, so it's just so courageous and brave of you to talk about this and I do want you to carry it forward now to what happened that made you get to that therapist and kind of wait, have a wake up moment. Yeah. I mean, I had, uh, I had focused all my uh, self-worth and energy into my professional development and none of my personal. Uh, I ended up in market three as a news anchor. Uh, I did have, I was married for a brief period of time. Um, uh, I'm not going to disparage her, but it wasn't the right person for me to be married to. Uh, we did produce a wonderful son. Uh, I did uh, end up getting a divorce and I moved to Chicago. Uh, I was alone and my son had moved to Vegas and uh, it became, um, you know, a, a situation where depression started really sinking in. So I had embarked on a series of relationships with, let's just say, emotionally unavailable women uh, and some were abusive. And uh, I got involved with a married woman and, and because that felt normal for me. And uh, she was in a neighboring state, we'll just say that. And uh, after a while, I broke off the relationship because I knew it was bad and unhealthy. I uh, got back together with another ex-girlfriend. And that ex-girlfriend started harassing the married woman. The two of them started going back and forth. The married woman brought the, uh, my ex-girlfriend up on charges uh, in this neighboring state. My name was mentioned in the affidavit. Uh, and being a news anchor, that was sexy. News anchor named in um, revenge porn case because she had 
been, uh, you know, harassing this woman with the woman's nude pictures that she had sent. So I got a, a restraining order against the married woman in Cook County. The hearing lasted all of 15 minutes. Uh, judge looked at the evidence, went, okay, restraining order granted. Uh, the married woman then got a restraining order against me in the neighboring state. That hearing lasted two days. Uh, it was a series of just simply embarrassing me, and it was covered by two small papers there in, in, uh, in that state. And uh, because I was a public figure, you know, one of the things that, you know, I learned is that when a public figure makes mistakes, other people will latch onto those mistakes to advance their own careers and agendas. Uh, I did make a mistake getting involved with these folks. That was a bad decision on my part. If I were coming from a healthy place, I never would have gotten involved with a married woman whatsoever in the beginning. Um, I had never been to this woman's house. I did not know where she lived. So the idea that I would be hit with a restraining order to me was asinine. I'm like, there's no, what, no, we never, you know, we met at my place or hotels. That was it. I never went, you know, after two days, the judge granted the restraining order, citing that I did not do enough to stop my ex-girlfriend's behavior, who was the one doing the harassing. And I lost my job. Um, after that happened, I decided to go into therapy. I went into rehab, actually. I went to an in-out wow. patient. And when I spoke to a therapist there, she said, you know, there is such a thing called love addiction. I'm like, well, what does that mean? It's like when you get when you chase that that rush of being able to achieve a relationship with somebody who's unavailable. And for me, the rush of being able to, you know, lure a married woman away from her husband, this was a rush I was chasing. And mm -hmm. I chose to be transparent about it. And that also opened me up for more criticism, more, more um, judgment. Um, so I, I look back on that. I look back on a, a lot of things I did and what I wish I had done it differently. Um, you know, I chose not to take the deny, deny, blame others. I just said, look, you know what? I made these decisions. Here's why I made the decisions. I'm working on it. Now I'm the best version of myself that I've, I've ever been. That's the approach I take now. Um, and initially, you know, some, I was forced to form my own company because nobody would hire me after that. Uh, and I'm not saying this like, you know, oh, what was me? Um, but you know, the articles, they look at it, they make a decision on who I am based on those, as opposed to who I am today. Um, but the clients that I work with today, um, you know, I, I understand what it means to be a great leader now, to lead with empathy, to lead with transparency, to take care of your side of the street, uh, to treat everybody with dignity, and to recognize, you know, when something's not right and unhealthy, to distance yourself from it. Those are the people that I work with now. I, my life has never been better, and I, I never would have gone on this path of self-discovery had all of this not happened. It was bizarre how it all conspired in a way that was very incongruous from my behavior, but I can only look at it as some kind of higher power, whatever you want to call it, ultimately working in my favor. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, your personal decisions will have an effect on your professional life and real success. Now, I finally learned at, you know, 53, about time, you cannot differentiate personal and professional success. They have got to be working in tandem and in concert together in order for real success to be achieved. And I know that now. Um, and my son, who he was traumatized by the experience, he was embarrassed by it. And now he learned from my, my, my failings. I'll call them failings. I failed when I involved myself in the, with these, you know, this love triangle and Diane, all of that. No, I didn't commit a crime or anything like that, but I was demonized. 
he's learned from it and I know he won't make the same mistakes. And that alone is, is, is worth it. So um, I look at it as probably saving my life. I think more than anything. I mean, who knows the woman's husband could have come and killed me for all I know, you know, I, you know, I, I had done it before. It wasn't the first time that I, but, but that's because that's why I realized that was, was familiar to me starting. It at was, yeah. I really want to stop and, and really have listeners hear this, that, you know, what happens in an early developmental years creates kind of a, a set point. Um, it's kind of like a thermostat if for lack of a better word, right? There's kind of this sense of normalcy and, and our nervous system holds and this is very neuroscience and trauma-informed that there's early imprinting. And so that level of familiarity. So for instance, what Rafer really brought up was I got involved with a married woman, unavailable women, because that's what was familiar. So let's break that out a little bit. Like he's giving very vulnerable personal stories of his experiences, but the way that plays out in any of our lives is we could have a certain type of experience. I know for myself, I witnessed my father have a lot of sexual relations outside of his marriage as a young child, but it wasn't talked about. It's just something you pick up as a child. And later on, when I was also an adult, I didn't know why I would only attract married men or unavailable men, but men that would lie about the fact that they were married or had a girlfriend or had mm -hmm. multiple families. And it took me a while to be like, why, why am I attracting this unavailability repeatedly? And it took a while later, but one of the things that hit me was as a child, I began to fantasize of being the other woman mm. because I witnessed that as the special thing. You know, and that's very weird and psychological, but this is why therapy is so important because so much of our adult behaviors aren't rational, ladies and gentlemen, they're cravings to fulfill something unmet. And if we knew what that shit was, we would get it <laughs> met, but right. we don't because we are resilient children we just grow beyond the obstacles and like raver explained he just he didn't identify that as as being an abuse situation he moved on 25 years later whether it's after his marriage or other relationships he's realizing wow there's something playing out and patterned here now he goes to a therapist who can help him to see i also want to point one more thing out this therapist helped him understand similar to what i'm saying there's something called love addiction where you're chasing something that never got fulfilled early there's lots of addiction, folks, sex addiction, love addiction. But this is what I think is so significant in your story, Rafer. You had this epiphany, you go to therapy, you start having major recognition of like old situations to the new one and how your choices are creating circumstances. It can be very empowering, but we can also then get too honest publicly in an environment that doesn't um, honor our 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 vulnerable sharing. And so here he is as a public figure, he, he gets written up, but also he gets honest. He's like, this is what happened historically. This is what's going on. But you know, the media scooches that up and paints whatever story. And I can only imagine the tabloid scene for, for that afterward. Like you're trying to be this man speaking to healing past abuse and love addiction. And it gets taken like a football and run. They turn love addiction into sex addiction. Uh, there is a difference between the two. There I is. was not, nor am I a sex addict. This was an emotional disorder. 
that I chased, I chose to be upfront about it because I started going to group therapy sessions with men who had experienced this and I could hear the pain and suffering that they had gone through. And I wanted to shed light on it. Now, you know, the fourth tradition in AA is attraction, not promotion. When I did that, um, I had spent some time in recovery. I haven't had a drink in seven years, but I was experienced some, you know, enough time in AA to know that, you know, and then I got the calls from the guys going, you know, they were upset with me for doing that. So there was a massive backlash that did it. Here's what I want to say about process addictions. And I feel this is a very important point. Process addictions and drug and alcohol addictions are very different things. Drug and alcohol addictions, it's cut and dry. You don't drink, you don't do drugs, end of story, period, full stop. Process addictions, love, food, spending, those are things we need to live. You can't stop eating, you can't stop loving, you can't stop buying things. So for somebody to overcome a process addiction, I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. But I'm, I want to tra- try to change the stigma. If somebody went from being a food addict to somebody who's now having a healthy relationship with that item, that human being changed their DNA. That would be like mm. an alcoholic becoming a social drinker. The amount of work that went into that paradigm shift, you should be embracing that person. That is somebody you want on your team. That is somebody who has worked so hard to better themselves you should not push them away or judge them. You should embrace them. I know a CEO of a company who overcame food addiction. He is one of the most, he was one of the first guys that reached out to me after I came out. This is one of the benefits when doing it is because certain people did reach out. This guy yeah. and I have been close ever since. He's one of my, he's a great leader. He is one of my daily inspirations. So I, I just wanted to kind of point that out. You're right. I was, I was demonized as, as, as a depraved individual. As a result it's brilliant. What you just talked about is so brilliant and such an important distinction because, you know, the more I talk about complex trauma, I can tell when people are afraid of engaging any further. And that's because of their own social cultural messiness inside that hasn't been processed. And, and then it will, it will sort, right. But to be a public figure and to do that, you know, it, it's a whole nother level of unraveling. And what I call in, in healing terms, we have to create disruptions in order to, to change process addiction. There has to be new choices. And so for him to get vulnerable publicly and then pivot, right? You created your own company after that because you weren't being hired. And this was a really like pivotal moment in in, in your own, say, business and profession personal lives learning to integrate that you can't keep them so compartmentalized and actually think you can become a whole healthy person. Yeah. I mean, you know, I like to tell stories now that, that, that matter. I love working nonprofits are my favorite clients because, you know, they're out there trying to save the world and do good. And admittedly, you know, telling stories for the news, I felt like I was really propagating stereotypes and fear. Uh, It was reactionary. We were, we were reporting on problems without ever any, any kind of context or solutions. Um, I've not watched the news since. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie to you. I mean, I was January 6th, of course, I'm watching that elections, but like other than that, like local news. And I remember when I was dating and I was, you know, on the news and I would go out and I, you know, women would ask, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a news anchor. The amount of times I heard, oh, I don't watch the news, it was almost nine out of 10. Um, you know, because they didn't know what I did. Um, I did want to address one other thing that I felt that I could felt safe talking to you about when we talked on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I feel, first of all, I just want to preface by saying is like, look, the Me Too movement was a very important movement. I, it gave voice to a lot of victims out there that have been silenced. My mother was a victim of sexual harassment at her job and in the 80s, and she went to the management and they fired her and she had no recourse over it. And this guy was a man. So I understand like that stuff is that shit's real. I get it. But when I was going through my civil uh, uh, disagreements, let's call them that, I was de I was a single man <laughs> and I was involved with a married woman with four children and I was demonized as the philanderer, the woman, I, I mean, and, and because there was another girl involved and it was a love triangle and there was absolutely not like this woman was the victim 100%. That was the narrative that was being played out in the media. And I was a little shocked by that. Mm. I was like, wait a minute. I didn't put a gun. I mean, you know, this wasn't, this was a consensual thing. That was very confusing to me. I, I, I still don't know how to respond to it. Uh, maybe you can shed some light on it. I felt like I felt that the Me Too movement was being weaponized to advance someone's personal agenda. I, I, I felt it was, I did feel it was unfair, but again, I don't want to start acting like I'm a victim because I'm the one that got involved with this woman. So, but I, I did feel that was a huge double standard. And I, and I yeah. feel there are real victims of harassment out there and to be lumped in and, 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 and somehow that narrative um, just didn't feel just. It didn't feel right. I don't know if it's okay that I feel that way. I think it's very okay you feel that way. And I also think that you're pointing out and highlighting a very important double standard within and, and how movements can be good movements and then kind of go off in a direction. Meaning, is it is it the totality that any abuse is worthy of speaking up? Is any human that gets groomed worthy of that same holding, right? And this is a really important point because the double standard, I think, really links back into the unacknowledged abuse of our young boys. Because if we don't acknowledge the amount of abuse that has taken place, the stats are very high, folks. We're talking about, and this is that the stats of reporting, but it's something like one in four, you know, one in four women, one in six men, you know, like it's not that far off in terms of the amount of abuse victims as children. And that usually the, the predator is someone you know. So it's the babysitter, the aunt, the cousin, the neighbor. The, um, and when young men are abused, more often than not, it's by women. It's not by men. And so we have to start looking at a larger cultural context of how we have implicit bias in our own mind around what makes a predator and what makes a victim. Because we have this idea that it's bad to speak out about our abuse as if we're being a victim, because there's been so much victim shaming historically that makes you wrong for saying out loud, this is not right. What just happened was abuse. So, so not are we, are, are we dealing with the double standard when somebody comes out, like you, you start voicing and then you get spun as the, the deviant and you know, it's no different than how we see black people as, as, you know, spun to the deviant over whiteness, but men over the woman. And, you know, this has, has to do with like historical stuff that's playing out in plain sight. And I think it only adds to the challenge of men coming forward and calling things for what it is, because there is, you know, there's a lot of social training around what men have to do to be men. 
you know, and what is manly right. and what is not. And so to speak out and to call something sexual abuse or to call it grooming, call it what it is, which opens up the space to then heal, right? And to create good, healthy relationships. It, it, it just feels like it's a compounding issue, right? That unacknowledgement then compounds and makes it that much more worse in a public environment that then turns around and demonizes men once again, even if they were the ones receiving abuse. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, it also want other men to not make the same mistake I made and understand that mental health is so important. I, I just, my culture, I growing up in the eighties on the North shore of Chicago, a successful father, uh, who was an iconic sportscaster, you know, my, my, he was, uh, you know, a huge viewed as a huge professional success. God bless the man. He went through marriages like a hot knife through butter. You know, this was a man who also experienced some trauma, not similar to mine, but, you know, in terms of the divorce that, you know, really affected him. And he never once set foot in a therapist's office. And I was looked, you know, it was just looked at as you don't got your shit together if you got to go to a head shrinker. And so I didn't put any energy and effort into, but it all started with what you said, Guru Nishan, that I did not think being a 15-year-old boy being with a 23-year-old woman was in any way traumatic. I thought that was, you know, I, I mean. Kudos. I, you know, event, later in life, I would brag about it, you know, I mean, but so there, the cultural stereotypes, you know, need to be looked at, um, you know, men do need to look at the fact, like, I mean, if I could do anything differently, I would go back in time 35 years and get into some therapy. So I would not have made the mistakes that I made in getting involved with the people that I did. And I mean, I will admit, you know, by, by being someone who pushed away healthy relationships, I did hurt people. And I want to acknowledge that, that I'm not, you know, I hurt women and I was dishonest. I was unfaithful in a lot of my relationships because I sabotaged them and that hurt people. And I regret, I'm very sad about that. You know, I, owe, I reached out to a lot of women and I'm like, look, I owe you an amends. It wasn't you. You know, I feel terrible about this. Now I know why I did it. Doesn't mean it was okay. That's right. Um, so, you know, so there were some, you know, I won't call them, but, but yeah, there were victims in terms of my behavior that had I gotten uh, had I gotten more awareness around that as being dysfunctional, I think I would have avoided that. Um, you know, I, my son, you know, the emotional trauma it caused him watching me fall from grace, watching me be embarrassed in the press, demonized is something I'm not. It was, you know, that was really hard on him. And, and he might have to, you know, go into some therapy later. And I've asked him to go into therapy. His mother doesn't want him to go because she also thinks well, you know what, let's, I don't want to go there. Yeah, I, yeah, I understand. I, I haven't been able to get her to agree to send my son to therapy. Um, he still looks at that as admitting maybe there's something wrong with him. And I just want to say, when you go to therapy, that's not admitting there's something wrong. It's admitting that we can be better. That's all. I think that's, I just feel that that stigma also needs to be, you know, th that's still prevalent. You know, even for my 12 year old son, he looks at it. Well, if I'm going to therapy, means there's something wrong with me. I'm like, no, son. It's not. It's just you're going to get yourself on a healthier path. Um, but I don't Absolutely. have custody of him Absolutely. anymore. You know, and that's one of the things that resulted in my divorce that I regret. So, you know, don't wait <laughs> until, you know, things blow up before you decide you want to start to write that ship. The ship can always be righted, right? I mean, we we can, you know, it's progress, not perfection at the end of the day. It's never, it's, you know, we, we can always be better. We'll never be perfect. If you focus on being perfect, then you're doomed, but you can always be better.
Yeah. And, you know, I just want to speak to that stigma on mental health. It's like, I only learned how to context myself within the framework of mental health two years ago. And I grew up in a real spiritual uh, yoga culture, you know, where everything was dealt with through the lingo and the language of, you know, wellness, but it wasn't therapy. And so I'm a huge advocate of therapy because it gives us a proper lens on ourselves outside of the cultural context of, say, your family, your religion, and your society. There are certain norms that have shaped your sense of identity, your own sense of esteem, um, and our view of the world. And so when we can start to break open those codes and realize that's not the only way it is, that might be great because you got it as your upbringing, but there are other aspects that can kind of make us more whole and, and rounded. And this language around being a victim or something's wrong with me, there's so much stigma around acknowledging historical pain, whether that pain was in our families, whether that pain was in our in our religious upbringing. Like think about the amount of abuse that has taken place in the Catholic church over the last number of decades. Only in the last five years have we talked about it, but it doesn't mean that hundreds and thousands of young boys haven't carried this convolution in their bodies. So if we don't have safe spaces where it can be talked about, what happens is it's kept inside and it distorts and it distorts your own image of you from the inside out and it distorts the image of the world. And then like Rafer has so brilliantly delivered today, it shows up in the landscape of our life, in the choices we make, in the behaviors, in the things we don't do, in the things we do do, um, the things we push away. And this isn't unique to him or to me. We all play out patterns based on what we learned early. And one of the ways that predatory patterns go on and continue to play out in culture and religion and society, and even in our own families, because we all have family members that we know are, are known for, for being the, the pedophile or being the incest. You know, there's families that have incest in their family and everybody knows it, but nobody talks about it. And the one of the ways this continues is through silence culture. So we are trained to be silent because we're embarrassed, because we can't explain it, because we don't know, because we were told if we talk about it, we would be in trouble. All these layers. Now, a lot of this stuff you might not remember, but I promise you, your body remembers because the brain shuts it out purposely. It's a, it's a matter of preservation and it puts it into a category that we can rationalize it and make it okay. And, you know, Rafer described his father going through marriages, having unstable relationships, kind of watching patterns of behavior. Well, where did he learn marriage patterns? Only by what you see, folks. Only by what you experience, right? And we don't know that that's what we play out because we play it out in a unique way specific to us. It's not always like tit for tat, you know? Like I became the other woman, Right. in my story, right? Because I was somehow idolizing the other woman. I didn't know I was purpose. I didn't want to be in a relationship with a married man. I didn't try to do those things. Right. But over and over again, they attracted me because I am magnetizing that as a pattern. So I hear similar things. And I want all of us to know this is why therapy is helpful because you can't see yourself in your own in your own frame. And not all therapy is created equal either. Right. So there's That's some good therapy, there's somatic therapy, there's all types of amazing types of therapy that, that suit you at different stages of your awakening. But more than anything, we're breaking the silence. 
we're not offering solutions here. We're not saying we got all the, the answers. What we're saying is we can't keep it in the dark any longer because silence and secrecy and shame are the triple trifecta that keep predatory patterns continuing. Silence, secrecy, and shame. And we keep silent and secret because we're so full of shame. And we don't even know why, because experiences don't always make so much sense until later on when everything is a disaster and we wonder, how did I get myself here? Well, I think you're doing very important work. I just want you to know that. And I think that, you know, victim, you know, what I, I, in doing a lot of my self-help work, you know, one of the things that I thought was a, a, a bad word was, you know, a victimhood, victim consciousness, um, because, you know, it, it, it doesn't empower you. But there's a difference between victimhood and acknowledgement. Right. And, and that and the ability to acknowledge and go, okay, this happened. How do I move past it? How do I, how do I rise above it? And, and look, I, you know, for what you described, what you went through, and I admire the, the shift that you've made, I'd love to in subsequent conversations, learn how you did it, because it's inspiring what you've done and what you've worked through. I've interviewed lots of young, lots of men who talked about being preyed upon as altar boys by, you know, the Catholic Church and priests. And having them go on camera and say that on camera because they wanted to right or wrong. I was like, you are my, I, I don't know how you did it. I admired these men for doing it. Um, they were victims. You were a victim. But the challenge, but then to be able to acknowledge, okay, I did not, you know, I, I did not want this to happen to me. This, this happened to me without me putting myself in that position. This happened to me. I am a victim. But then to make that shift, to be able to rise above that, you know, I don't want to put myself in the same realm as you and, and these men that I spoke to. I, I, I don't, I still feel like, look, you got involved with a married woman in her 20s. You didn't have to go to that Motel 6. I mean, I don't know. I still feel like that's not, we're not on the same plane. Um, but at least acknowledging that it was traumatic and not right would have, I would have been able to avoid the patterns that, that, that happened later on. So I, I, I just wanted to acknowledge you and the work that you're doing and, you know, it, giving people platforms to have these uncomfortable conversations, I think is very, very important. I think you're, you're a very admirable person, Guru Nishan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I will let you know that you are absolutely in that same category of the courage that it takes to come forward and name something what it is. Um, and to fully acknowledge all the places that we've been victimized and violated is not an easy road. And there are layers to it. It's kind of like scar tissue. You know, we access it at, at layers of ourselves. And I just want to put it back to you. You are in that category, even if you don't necessarily see it. I want you to know it's so commendable to re recreate yourself your life and also to be willing to start examining aspects to our history that um, create create um, like roadmaps mm -hmm. that we don't we right. don't see it for like we think everything is a choice we somehow think oh I chose that that's not true as we start to understand how the brain works and what part of our brain is online and the more neuroscience I just want everybody to hear this as much as I I, I do empathize in the voice of, of what he's speaking to there's still this element of I chose to do that and I want to say this is the extra convoluted psychosomatic mind fuckery of being <laughs> sexually violated 
when you are a child. And whether or not we want to acknowledge it, a 15, 16, 17, and 8-year-old is still very much in brain development. And so what happens in the brain development when we are pleasured and violated simultaneously, okay? And it's what I call the commingling of love and abuse. Mm. When coming, when we are, when we learn that love and abuse is commingled, it's an enmeshed sense of worthiness that lives in our body, and we seek it out every time because, because what else would you seek out, you know? Right. And and I just I have to say that because it's okay to never use the word I was a victim, and it's still also okay to know it was true, even if those words don't yet land in, in our own psychology. Well, I appreciate the empowerment. You know, I mean, the good news is, is I, I, since this happened, I am capable of healthy relationships now, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a wonderful feeling, you know, to be able to be like, yeah, this woman loves me and there's nothing wrong with her. Yeah, this is great. You know, <laughs> And like, I can love her back and I can be yes. unconditional about that love. And, and also your, your budding career, like to be able to do your own work and to be able to empower your ministry of media, but with your voice, instead of being bound by just the legacy of your father and following in that footsteps and then not being able to be your living truth. Like you are more of a human and a whole person because this disruption took place. And that's generally what healing does. If we let ourselves get disrupted and dismantled, there's so much more of us that gets to emerge if, if we can allow it. So thank you for that courage of, of living you. Well, man, we need to hang out more often because this has been really great for, um, you know, my self-esteem. You know, I tell people when I was in the news, I was operating from a paradox of high ego, low self-esteem. And now it's inversed, you know, ego is the word, you know, what does that stand for? Edging God out, you know, now build, build one's esteem through esteemable acts. Um, you know, ego is really, you know, what is that, right? If that, if you're, if you're, if you're serving the God of your ego, you're, you're not serving others. And at the end of the day, if you, if you start with that in some way, then everything else falls into place. I'm still, I'm still new at it. <laughs> this is all new for me. Um, you know, those, those Emmys behind me came from that former, you know, paradigm of, you know, serving the ego. Uh, and I was good at it. Um, but it doesn't, it's not a sustainable model. It's just not, mm -hmm. you have to, you have to, at some point, you know, bring in some wholeness and some spirituality, whatever that means to you. And, right. uh, and again, I'm not claiming to be, you're a, you're a guru guru in Sean. I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I just like to, I know I need to hang out with people like you and to me and where, from where I was three years ago, that's a victory. Like that's an awareness that I didn't even have. So, uh, I'm grateful you came into my sphere and I'm grateful for the time to chat with you. And I, I hope that, you know, this helps somebody. I, I really do. Um, I really because, do. Yeah. Thank you. And I know it will. So thank you for being here and, uh, we'll talk to you on the next episode. This has been another episode of Uncomfortable Conversations on Predators in Business, Community, and Culture. If you need support beyond this listening space, you can connect with me at gurunishan.com. I'm a writer, speaker, and trauma healing activist offering free and paid resources, online courses, and consulting in personal and professional reinvention. If you'd like to be a guest and share your story, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com or check the show notes for details. Please also like, subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with someone that you love. Please remember your listening and sharing support is greatly appreciated.
The information presented in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved. By listening, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Nothing in this podcast is intended to replace the services of a trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Guru Nishan LLC and affiliate organizations shall under no circumstances be liable to any listener of the podcast or viewer for any action or inaction on your part as a result of the content you consume on this podcast or for any adverse reaction, including any emotional distress you experience as a result of consuming this podcast. 